Hey, welcome! Thanks for tuning in! This is There's Something About Artbeats, a podcast where I discuss with experts and industry leaders about the many sides of the artbeats industry. I'm your host, Federico Biancullo. I am an artbeats artist, founder of The Big Picture, blogger and content creator in the field of architectural representation. I'm on a journey to learn more on all things about artbeats, art direction, business, technology, you name it. And I would like you to be a part of this journey as well. Through these conversations, my hope is to bring light to not so obvious topics connected to our industry and help you grow as a professional, as an artist, and why not, as a human being as well. So please join me. Without further ado, let's jump into this episode of There's Something About Artbeats. everyone i'm back uh, i hope you're doing well out there or in there given the times we live in uh, well never mind i'm back with another great conversation today and i was really really looking forward to releasing this one i'm joined today by mike golden you've probably already heard of mike he's the founder of three marks a one-man show visualization office largely focused on luxury real estate mike is best known on the internet with the alias of drawkey under which he crafts digital art Plus, Mike is also a great lecturer, and he has been featured several times at ArcBiz industry conferences and schools all around the world. So, the original scope of this conversation was talking to Mike about his experience in running a one-man show. And although at times we went a bit off the original topic, this conversation is so packed with valuable insight that, honestly, I didn't feel like doing any cut. So, what I did instead is splitting the recording, which was originally almost two hours long, into two episodes. Next one is dropping two weeks from now, so make a note on your calendar and don't miss it. The focus of this episode is on Mike's journey, the one that led him from working for D-Box and Thomas Ulansen to found 3Max indeed. We discussed the reasons that led him to launch his own brand and the lessons that he learned during his time as an employee and how these lessons now help him running his practice. Another point we touched on is the importance of human interaction when working as a solo artist, and how having a circle of trusted peers is beneficial not only to get feedback, because of course we tend to get stuck on our work and having a fresh set of eyes will always be beneficial, but also to share the thrill of a job well done and to celebrate wins. From that we briefly pivoted on how social media metrics are not necessarily a measurement of the quality of our work, and how we need to protect our very human need for artistic validation by curating what we base that on. Although this topic will probably need a standalone episode, and trust me, it will come. Oh, and finally, we also talk about important skills for anyone who wants to run a business while having their hands in the process. Skills such as detaching ourselves from our work, learning not to take criticism personally, and also how to practice active listening to identify our clients' real needs. But I leave it up to you to discover the rest. Please enjoy my conversation with Mike Golden. Mike, first of all, thank you so much for being here. I'm so happy to have you on the show because you're, you're just a great guy to listen to. And you show so much wisdom and insight in your talk. So I'm honestly so glad that you found time to have a chat. I got to know you in 2018 at the D2, mm -hmm. when you jumped on the stage and talked about client management, all the sketches, <laughs> things that kind of opened my mind, even though I knew firms that used to do that, but seeing it on the stage, it was another thing. Oh, thank you. That's amazing. When you say it out loud on a stage, it has a different impact, you know? Everything said out loud on a stage has a different impact. You can get up there and say anything you want, and it just sounds more real. Yeah, it's more human. Also, D2 is more personal <laughs> as, a, as a whole environment. I mean, I'm a 
great fan of the D2. And uh, all the people that I've met and gotten to meet there has just been an amazing thing. There's nothing else in my year, at least, where I get to spend three days just like talking to people that I know their work and don't know the people and just talking about ArcViz or ArcViz related stuff. It's like overload for three days. And I just, I love every minute of it every year. During these events, it's also very enjoyable to speak to people about things that are non-ArcViz related. So we know each other better, what makes us tick as artists, what are our passions, our interests. You know, also the occasion to know people from the industry a bit more. But we also have the occasion to know each other here. So why don't you tell me who you are, where you come from, also for who's listening. Probably many of us already know you, know a bit of your story, but it's still good to have it from you. Uh, sure, sure. Um, well, I, well, I do want to say there's a neat thing about ArcViz people in general in that I think that most of us love what we do, but we didn't set out to become ArcViz artists in the beginning. Most people have a, a different way in, whether it's through architecture or through some type of VFX or image making, everyone kind of has a story and there's something really cool about that within the community as to how we ended up as ArcViz artists. That's the best part of ArcViz, I think. It's a profession that you get in because you're passionate about that. It's not like you made a wrong choice in your college or your university and then you get stuck into that. It's something that you get there <laughs> eventually after realizing that that's what you want to do. That's the best thing about ArcViz. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess my kind of story as to how I came here to be talking to you today. Um, I went to graduate school, so I, I got into architecture, the architecture world later in life. I did philosophy for undergrad. I worked on fishing boats in Alaska for a number of years. And then I went to architecture school to get a graduate degree and really quickly decided or realized that I, I loved the image making part of architecture school. And I loved architecture itself, but the actual designing, I wasn't a huge fan of. I, I, I wasn't great at it. I wasn't terrible at it. I was just kind of whatever I but it was like all semester would go by and then at the end when you get to make the final images I would get really excited about the images and so right out of architecture school um, I went and worked for dbox which was an amazing kind of luck of the draw type situation and I got to work closely with Matthew and Keith uh, among a, a lot of other people but but particularly those two and I spent two years there and it was an amazing experience, and when I left then to set up Three Marks, I ended up kind of in that month of ending D-Box, getting an offer for another job at an architect office, Thomas Johansson's, and it was a pretty good offer, and I wasn't quite ready to set things up, I was starting to realize, and so then I spent a year working at Thomas Johansson's architecture office, doing images in-house for him. Uh, mostly for design presentations, not so much marketing. And after that, I set up uh, Three Marks. I did that for like a year and a half. I was doing a lot of freelance at the time. And a job came along that was big enough uh, to warrant making the jump out on my own. And uh, Three Marks started and has kind of been running ever since. Uh, I spent a couple of years doing some actual team management uh, or 3D supervision for Kitbash 3D. And that was just kind of a... It happened out of nowhere. Um, how does that kind of fit into the narrative? It kind of, it kind of breaks the narrative for a moment. But um, I was making images as Drokey, just anonymously, just as an outlet for kind of practice. And they saw some of my work, and we ended up talking. And they're like, "Would you like to do some three D like technical supervision of the kits?" And that kind of snowballed into almost a full time gig. 
uh, for a couple years there, and now I'm back to making images. I think it really fits well your narrative because Drokiz is a big part of what you do as well. Now you're getting started also with Twitch, which is really interesting. It's something that I'm also personally looking into that with my activity from Italian content creation as well. But out of curiosity, how did you get a foot into the box? Kind of by chance. So I had just graduated. Um, I spent a couple of months working for a professor, Roland Snooks of Kukuja, uh, and one of his friends for this firm called MVS Architects out of Australia. Um, and so I spent a couple of months right after school. I was planning on taking a break. You know, um, architecture school, at least here in the U.S., is pretty intense. Uh, and so I was, you know, I needed to kind of sleep and get my mental health back together. And then I got an offer to go work for three months in China. And so I did that. And then I came back from China. I'm like, okay, it's time to actually apply. I, that was always going to be a short-term thing. And I was like, okay, time to apply. And I wasn't applying to any architecture offices except in the capacity as a visualist. And then I was applying all to ArcViz firms, all the ones that you know you would expect, the, the first ones that kind of come to mind. And one of my friends, this lovely person named Senem, her friend Nancy had just gotten a job at DBox on the project management side. And she's like, you should send your portfolio to her and she'll pass it along. She's new there, but you never know. And uh, so I sent uh, my portfolio over and got an email back directly actually from Matthew uh, a couple days later. And we had an interview and it went really well. And I started a week after that. It was, it was kind of like really rapid fire. But I feel like all those things kind of happen. You send an application that gets looked at at the right time by the right person. I feel like there's so much luck in that draw as to when you're sending things out and who actually looks at it uh, that, you know. It's true until a certain extent, because I also think that luck is something that you make happen. If you weren't doing those portfolios at that time, if you weren't really at the best of your skills, you wouldn't get a job at D-Box. So it's also part luck, of course, but it's also something that we make happen. Oh, absolutely agree with that. What is it D-Box US, by the way? Yes, yes, I was in the New York office. Um, I was in the New York office uh, the entire time I was there, and that was right around, um, I left around the time that they were setting up their Miami office. Like it was in the process of getting set up, and I don't think it was quite set up when I left, or maybe it was just started, mm -hmm. but about then. All right. In New York. So you also had an experience as a now visualization person for Thomas Johansson? Yes. Where is he from? From Scandinavia? Somewhere like that? Yes, he's um, he's Danish. He's from Denmark. And uh, he worked for Richard Meyer for a really long time, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and so like a very kind of clean, modernist aesthetic. Uh, he personally, he's kind of an interesting dude. He's, he's by nature, by his personal nature, he, he considers himself a socialist and yet he's really well known uh, for doing very high-end luxury residential. So basically designing build, uh, homes for like the top 1%. <laughs> yeah. uh, a bit of a dichotomy, but a really strange dude and a really, really smart dude as well. Uh, and a really talented designer. Okay, cool. So you had a really great head start in your career because you got to see both sides of the barricade, so to say. You were both an architectural communication firm employee and an in-house visualization specialist. And you know, in the position that you were in, many people will feel the urge to start something on their own as well. But sometimes I have the feeling that people do this for wrong reasons. Uh, you know, it can be really difficult to be mature enough to see this as a next step in self-development. Many people do that just because they're fed up with a boss, with boring tasks. And this is probably the worst way to start your own thing. <laughs> I can tell that from experience as well. But what pushed you personally to start on your own as three marks? 
can we define three marks as a one-man show? Yes, I mean... Do you like the definition, first of all? I'm perfectly happy with right, calling it a okay. one-man show. All right, perfect. <laughs> because some people, you know, they don't like to be called one-man show. They, they like to call solo studio or freelance. Depends on the person. I don't typically refer to myself as a freelancer, even though technically I am. Yeah. I think that there's a, a different understanding of that within the archivist world. And I've talked about this before. In, in like VFX... A great many of the amazing people in that industry are freelancers and describe themselves as freelancers. Uh, and and it connotates a different thing. Whereas in, in the ArcViz world, I feel like a freelancer is someone who's just kind of doing stuff. Yeah, hustling. Yeah, kind of hustling. And I've always thought of Three Marks as a business. I've thought of it as professional. And I've always described it, if anything, as, you know, a boutique agency, as much as I kind of don't like the word boutique, but it, it seems like the right one. Uh, or just a company that happens to only consist of one person. But it's, uh, it's, a, it's a different, I think it's all about how you present yourself, right? And, and um, I think that whether you're a one-man show or a 50-man show, you can either be professional or not professional. Just because you're a large firm doesn't mean that you're doing things well. And just because you're a small firm doesn't mean you're doing things poorly, yeah. uh, in my estimation. I think there are reasons for both. I totally agree. Uh, probably there's a cap on the scale of projects that you can tackle, the number of projects. Mm -hmm. But quality is kind of independent from the number of people you are. And actually, I think that the more people you have, the more difficulties to get a, a consistent quality output. 100% agree with that. I mean, it's the nature of the business, right? Because you have more artists. Unless you have a really strong process behind, of course. Um, I'm reading a book these days. It's called The E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber. He's an American author. And it's basically a book on how to build a successful small business. Mm -hmm. I'm reading a lot of interesting concepts from these pages. Although I'm taking this concept with a, with a pinch of salt, you know. I'm not sure all of this concept could be applied to Arcvis. For example, it goes a lot about orchestration, which is elimination of discretion in the process. So trying to systematize all processes, mm -hmm. uh, putting everything into boxes that work consistently the same way all the time. And I'm not sure this could be applied to Arcvis, even on larger companies, because you never have full control on the final output, especially for certain branches of Arcvis. I mean, I, th I think it's really hard, and it's one of the things that I saw a lot in, at D-Box, which is, uh, for an ArcViz company on the larger side of things, um, attaining that kind of consistency of what you're actually outputting to your clients. Obviously, with one person, it's naturally, it's just a matter of doing your best every time, and it'll kind of continue going the same direction. As you add more and more people... <laughs> you have senior artists that kind of help make sure that everything comes together so that there's like a visual identity or your clients are getting what they expect to be getting. Uh, I thought, I thought D box did a really good job of handling that side of things, especially compared to some of the other larger companies that I see in the industry. There are certain things that are never going to be as easy as, as say a tech company, as far as making things consistent and systematized. But I think that, one of the things that a lot of ArcViz firms can learn from non-ArcViz companies is kind of like the business fundamentals, like yeah. making sure we might not be able to make sure that the image output that we, we create every time is at the exact same quality and has the exact same aesthetic or, and it, it might not be a good thing if it was, but I think a lot of us kind of jump into this and, and this may or may not be true for you, but was certainly true for me. 
a lot of us jump into setting up our own firm, having a clear idea of what we want to do and not really knowing or understanding that we don't know how to run a business. And so there's a lot to be learned, I think, on the business side of, of uh, education. And not just that, also, especially if you want to scale up, also on the side of managing people, which is not easy at all. That is absolutely its own specialty. Yeah. And not easy. But business is the first thing. Come up with a business plan, maybe an acquisition plan if you, if you don't have a strong network of people that you know that can supply you with jobs. Mm -hmm. So it's all these kind of things. It's not like that you jump into Arcvis without having this safety network, without having your numbers sorted out, all this kind of stuff. But anyway, going back to the main topic, what made you do the leap towards being a, a one-man show? The initial, I think, kind of impetus, the thing that like, there's, I think there's a part of me that almost always thought that that's where I was going to end up. Um, I was doing, I started doing freelance work while I was still in grad school, mm -hmm. uh, just in, in, in my weekends and off time, what little off time I had. Uh, and so I think that there was always something that I wanted to kind of have that control uh, of the, of the working process, but the kind of initial impetus of, of leaving D box, which is when I kind of made the decision to go out on my own, even though I then ended up one year at Thomas Johansson, the original thought was I wanted to be able to experiment, not, not so much with the images, but more the relationship with the client. Mm. And so, as you can imagine, D-Box being in a very established company and one of the, the, the companies that kind of set up the status quo, I think, of our industry, I couldn't just, you know, do and say whatever I wanted to a client. They had processes that were to be followed, uh, as you would expect, so that anytime you go to D-Box, it's not like, well, it's either the D-Box way or this one like weird artist that kind of does things his own way. And we were right at the time, that was in like 2013, I want to say, or thereabouts. And it was right at the time that I think we were seeing a big shift in the technology, right? Like prior to 2013, if you were creating good-looking ArcViz, you were doing a lot of post-production, right? You know, this was like back in like the V-Ray 1.6 days. And as a result of that, the process kind of had to be set up in what we all think of, I think, is the, the standard process, which is let's pick out a camera and let's lock that down first. And then let's start putting stuff in it and make sure that that gets approved. And then let's start making it beautiful. And then we'll review that and be done. Right. And it's all kind of based around like the old idea that moving a camera at the end is making a lot of work for ourselves. Nowadays, right around that time, we we're starting to see a shift where the renderers were getting much, much better like at a rapid, rapid pace. And the amount of post-production that you had to do was lower. So you could still do a heavy post-production route or you could go much more pure 3D, quote unquote. And one of the things that I was thinking about was that uh, it'd be nice if we shortened the process was kind of always an initial driver of why I wanted to open my own thing because I wanted to have the freedom to kind of that's what happens if we cut some steps out or what happens if we did things instead of showing white box renderings. What if we pushed it all the way? Initially, the thought was to start with black and white to kind of set up compositions and, and lock down view cameras. And I basically just wanted to kind of like mess with the client relationship in, in such a way that it would have been impossible to do within an existing firm. Uh, particularly one as established as D-Box. I mean, like, yes, you always kind of want to have control over the aesthetic of your images and, and I think have more autonomy over how the company is being run and what projects you're taking on and all of that. 
So that there was all those little things, I think, sprinkled in. I, I think it's never as simple as, as one thing, uh, or at least probably not typically. But I think the main driving force for me was I would like to play with the client management side of the ArcViz mm-hmm. industry. But I really like how the white render plays into that, you know. I hate white renders as well. <laughs> uh, I also try to give my clients, even though the scale of our projects are different, I also try to give my clients uh, an image that is 70% ready by the mm-hmm. first draft. So it's something they really enjoy. And the client also, some kind of clients also really enjoy that because they see the image, what could be at the end. They already have an outlook of the final result somehow. But yeah, it's also amazing to see how technology is squeezing the time spent in the process in ways that we didn't even think three years ago. Not just software with the rendering engines getting easier and easier by the day, but also hardware. Think about AMD, what it's doing with the Threadripper series. They're putting beasts of CPUs at (laughs) at a street price. (laughs) Thinking of having 64 threads or even 128 threads processors in our houses, in our offices, at a street price, it's just amazing. It's uh, it's something that nullifies rendering times, at least for, for still images. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, and animations, eh, it still matters, but there's also real times getting better and better and more beautiful every day. Uh, you know, I, I still, I can remember working on, like, my first, you know, four core, you know, I, I something. I forget what processor it was. But, like, even for a test render, you'd press render and you would wait a couple of minutes and you'd get a couple little boxes in one little region of your scene and you'd kind of make us some educated guesses and you you know, you had to think about how often you pressed X. If you just tested every little change that you made as you worked, you would never finish an image. I know. I experienced a bit that phase because I may look young, but I'm 33. <laughs> okay. Anyway, I, I have some experience. I started doing this in 2015. So at that time, V3.0 was just out. Yep, yep. Progressive was just getting a foot just in the starting, industry. Just starting to really be usable. Exactly, but it was not really usable yet. So we're still we're doing Irradiance Map like Cache. Brute Force was just becoming a thing with the buckets. But there's something else about being a solo artist that is the lack of a team. Mm-hmm. And human interaction, I think it's still really important, really relevant in what we do. Uh, do you miss human interaction with a team? What do you miss of working in a team? I mean, there's definitely, like, it's almost a cliche, right? This idea of of bouncing ideas off of mm-hmm. somebody else, sitting down, like saying like, hey, I'm working on this image, what do you think of it? Um, but, it's, but it's cliched for a reason, which is that, you know, A, we get sucked into our own work and we stare at the same thing for too long and, and we kind of become blind to what needs to needs to happen or could happen uh, for that. And also you're always bringing your own perspective and your own kind of viewpoint to, to the work you, that's in front of you. And so that element of sitting down and brainstorming ideas uh, that you wouldn't come up with on your own uh, and being able to look at images as a group and everyone kind of throws in their two cents and then the end result is a couple of bucks instead of two cents, right? And uh, so I definitely miss that element. And then at the same time, I've done my best to kind of keep that alive to mm-hmm. some degree just through, I have like a small group of friends that like I share a lot of the work that I'm working on as I'm working on it. I, I, you see a lot of people f- posting like WIPs for client work. Mm-hmm on like Facebook and everything. And I'm like, I mean, A, surely you have an NDA that you're now violating. Oh yeah, but of also, course as well. <laughs> like if your client sees that, they're not going to be thrilled that you're throwing these things around on random forums on the internet. So I'm not, I'm not a fan of that. I take my contracts very, very seriously. 
but there's like, you know, my very small kind of immediate group of people who they're not all from ArcViz, but they're all people who I really respect and trust their um, feedback on what I'm working on. So whether it's just, hey, guys, take a look at this. Let me know what you think. You know, we have like kind of our separate group chats um, that we're all in. Or just like, hey, guys, I'm stuck. This image, uh, I'm, I'm not thrilled with it. What should I do? Those types of things. I've tried to maintain them without having people that I'm working with that I can I can do that for. Because, I mean, it, it, you know, anyone who thinks that one head is better than multiple heads is, is you know, off their rocker, right? Like there's, the autonomy is great, uh, but that's a double-edged sword if there ever was one. What can I say? I, I'm feeling the same things. Uh, just recently, I think one year ago, I also started as Slack channel with a few friends. Now, right mm-hmm. now, it's just three people in that channel, but we we bounce ideas off our images. Like when we're doing a challenge or a project for a client, we just post our work in progress and we exchange feedback. So I can see it's really working. And you don't have this obligation of being in a team or working as a machine, but you still get feedback from your friends, from your peers. And it's really nice. It's a really nice way to make it work somehow. And the, and there's also the element like, you know, you only get so much positive feedback from your clients, right? And the nature of that relationship, the positive is kind of muted to some degree. But when you finish an image that you're really proud of, right? A lot of times, at least in, in my kind of world in ArcViz, it might be a year before I can share that, mm. right? And so there's that feeling of wanting to say like, yo, check this out. I'm so excited about this. Like, (laughs) dude, I made this. It's cool, right? Like, check this out. Um, And like, I feel like that the desire to show that is strongest right when you finish it because a year afterwards, you're kind of like, oh, yeah, I made that a while ago. Well, yeah. You know, like the, the, the shininess kind of fades. And having those types of relationships where you can do that it's built into a company where you know obviously you've all been working on the same image and you can all look at it when it's done or the film or vr or whatever it might be and say like yeah this is like hell yeah we made a cool one but the motivation you get from that is important right and like get keeping your own personal excitement high i think is a is a challenge if you're a freelancer or a, a one-man show or whatever you want to call it um and being able to like not just get feedback or tackle some of the challenges with like a, a team of people that are close to you, but also get to celebrate the the highs that you can't do necessarily publicly. And I think that, you know, if you make images that win a competition, you want to be able to share that with people. You can't necessarily do that via the Internet. Right. Um, or like openly on the Internet. And so having those people that you can aid lean on when you need some help but also like, you know, celebrate when one of you has a win, I think is an important, probably overlooked thing, or at least I don't feel like it's talked about a ton. I was thinking something about this drive that you mentioned. Um, Of course, the thrill of showing your work to your peers, to the community is a very normal thing, especially for us ArcBiz artists. But on the other hand, having a circle of close friends that review your work and celebrate your work when the work is, is done, it's very healthy and helpful because then, you don't rely so much on external social proof, which is the likes, the shares, etc., all the metrics that we we both love and hate. I think that could be a good starting point to start tackling the need for validation that we all have in our profession. Yeah, that need for validation, we all have it, right? And, and need for validation almost makes it sound like it's a bad thing. No, it's not bad at all. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's a it's an incredibly human thing. 
and going like the how many likes did this image get route is a dangerous one right because that's not those aren't they're not meaningful and they're also not really based on the quality of your work right the number of likes an image get the, your follower count obviously is, is going to be the biggest determinant of that number but for the most part when you're and you can you can test this for yourself next time you're scrolling through instagram or behance or wherever you're looking at you know visual inspiration if you see an image from like one of your friends or one of your heroes, you kind of tap like regardless of what that image is, mm-hmm. right? You're not you're not sitting there looking at each image as like does this one meet the Mike Golden seal of approval to get a like? <laughs> well, the composition is a little bit weak, you know. Like you're not judging it with that type of critical eye. You're just saying like, oh, I like the colors, or I like the composition, or I like the person, right? And this goes back to your talk at the Christmas special at the T two. You touch on social media. That was really important to tell it on stage again, to go back to the beginning <laughs> of the show. It's really important to tell this. I, I'd like to bring this on the show as well, this social media aspect of our profession, because I think it's really important that as artists, we use social media in a responsible way, like drinking. Drink responsible, use social media responsibly, you know, all this kind of <laughs> yeah, stuff. Yeah, fr- friends don't let friends Instagram drunk. <laughs> exactly, um, yeah. But it's also a matter of algorithm as well. I mean, even within like, you know, your own posts, you see that. And so like, you can't, you can't root your, as like, and I'm doing the air quotes, you know, an artist, our egos are pretty fragile, right? Yeah. Like, we, like we, we put things out into the world, whether it's personal work or professional work, and we care a lot about them. And that's a beautiful thing, but it also means that if someone doesn't like it or not, quote unquote, enough people like it or whatever it might be, or we have a tendency to take that personally. And so I think protecting that need for validation and and curating what you're going to base that on is an incredibly important thing, I think, not just for freelancers and one man shows, but also anyone who's who's doing creative work for a living or, or at all. And it's hard as hell. Yeah, it's real hard. It's it's really hard not to take it personally. And having like that group of people who's like, these people's opinions, I really value, mm-hmm. right? Like if the whole internet hates my image, but these, you know, six or seven or so people think that I did something interesting here, I'm going to trust the six and forget about the world as a whole to mm-hmm. some degree, right? All right, yeah. Um, it's important and it's a hard thing because it's the same thing like, you know, when you get into hearing about advice as to how to grow in, inside of a, a creative industry or how to start your own creative business. One of the things that you always hear, and this is true for graphic designers, architects, you know, illustrators, everybody, uh, you have to not take criticism personally. We all know that, right? Like if your client says they don't like something or whatever else, you can't look at that as a reflection of you. It's a reaction to the image itself or the film or whatever it might be. It's super important to learn how to not take it personally. But it's also incredibly hard to detach yourself from that. Because you have a problem as artists. It's not a typical business that you build from scratch and you see from the outside somehow. Most of the artists see and identify themselves as the business they do, the images they do. So... It's Absolutely. really hard to, to take this in a non-personal way because it's something that is you. The image is you. And it's fucking hard <laughs> detaching <laughs> yourself at, from that. It's so... And like, I think that I'm pretty good at it, but my initial reaction, if I'm sitting in a client review and I show an image to a client and, you know, you get all of that non-verbal feedback of like, they don't love that. They're not crazy about this. I don't know what they're about to say, but they're not crazy about it. And then they start picking out... They usually don't just say, I don't like it. Usually they're like, 
uh, I'm not sure about the flowers or, you know, maybe whatever it is. It's usually a little, little thing that they start picking at, you know, 10 years into this industry or so my like gut reaction, like that first set of emotions that kind of runs through is exactly the same. And it's, it's definitely still taking it personal. Right. It's a gut reaction. You cannot stop it. But then what you can do is just, you know, having this thought validation, this thought process that tells you, okay, maybe the client is not liking this because they have a different goal with the image. They have a different taste about this aspect of the image. It's not about you. It's about them. It's about their taste, their ideas of the project, about the idea of what they want to communicate. But getting to that, getting to start this thought process, it's really hard. You definitely like it's that clear thing of like, do not say the first thing that comes to your mind. Let the person finish thinking or talking. And like in that, you need to take like that one deep breath and say like, okay, the most important thing I can do here, regardless of how I feel, is to understand what the client's trying to say to me. Because like that might be buried beneath the actual words or suggestions that they're throwing out there. And so at least for me, like kind of take your minute. Okay, the goal is to understand, right? To do your job well right now. The only thing that you're trying, you're not trying to necessarily defend your work, depending on what they're saying. Definitely don't want to get defensive. All you want to do to do your job well in that moment, the thing that I tell myself is you need to understand what your client is saying to you, both the actual things that they're saying and, and then pick that apart to understand where it's coming from. And at least for me, if I focus on that, I kind of can let go of the you know, the the little artist inside that's screaming, I, I just want the likes or whatever it might be. And and then you move on. And this is another business skill, you know, practicing active listening with your client. That's a really important one. Mm-hmm. And we don't really think so much about it, but it's probably crucial to run a successful RFS business of any size. I, I mean, at the end of the day, we're, we're providing a service, right? We are a, a creative service industry. And I think that anything that has service in part of that industry, if you if you are not actively listening, you're probably missing a lot of the conversation. And that's that goes doubly for the last nine months where most of us have been communicating, you know, the way that we are right now, which is over the Internet through microphones and cameras. It's very easy to get distracted and to realize that like a couple minutes have gone by in the conversation particularly for long client meetings where you're like, I have no idea what, what got said. I got, I got thinking about a thing that I need to do later or whatever. And that those are all symptoms of non-active listening of passive listening. And that just means you're missing a lot of what the important stuff is. Cause at least in my experience in dealing with clients, um, the important things that are being said are usually not in the words themselves. So like when I think of the the kind of typical feedback that you hear all of the time about turning chairs and changing flowers or bluer skies or whatever it might be, for the most part, what they're asking for is not addressing the thing that they don't like. They're not making images for a living. They're selling buildings or designing buildings for a living, um, depending on who your client is. What they're telling you to do as far as the suggested revisions is their best guess as to how to fix the things that they don't like, right? So they might say, turn a chair, when what they mean is, I want the space to feel bigger, Yeah. right? Or they might say, we need a bluer sky, when what they're saying is, we need to see more of the view. The view should be more highlighted, 
Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And the only way that you get to that is a paying a lot of attention to what they're saying, taking a very active role and being able to look at it and then think through what you know about the industry and about images and about how you visually describe architecture and asking the right questions to kind of get to that second level right beneath, which is, oh, what you want is this room to feel bigger. Whether I move some chairs around to accomplish that or move the camera or change the lens or change the time of day or just the direction of the light or there's a million ways to kind of deal with some of these issues. But what you want is the room when you look at this image, the room to feel bigger, right? Because if you if they got that feeling initially when they saw the image, they wouldn't care about turning a chair or changing a flower in the background. In my experience. Absolutely. I agree 100% with that. And honestly, I don't think I could have explained this any better than you. And I also think that clients as well sometimes are not that great at communicating their own ideas. So that's why they formulate weird requests by meaning something else. And it's our job as artists, as entrepreneurs as well, I would say, to discover the meaning behind these requests. And this is done by making the right question at the right time, of course. Another thing is that as cliche they may seem, these requests come from a place of wanting to keep a status quo, wanting to be safe, trying to take the route they already know, which is not necessarily the route that works the best way all the time. But the real problem here is that artists usually go kind of tunnel vision on these requests. They usually complain and make cliches out of these requests without actually asking why these requests happen, without having a deeper conversation with the client on the reasons behind them. And, you know, like there's also there's there's that status quo of like there's a certain expectation and no one wants to kind of miss that mark um on the image side of things like the clients blue skies are the safe bet or whatever it might be if you want to do something else and you show them an image that has like a a moody sky or darker sky or whatever it might be if they don't love that image they're going to ask for a blue sky not necessarily because not necessarily because they think that a blue sky is the answer to everything but because your image wasn't good enough or or you missed the mark of what they were looking for yeah you know, there's uh, there's one project that I did where for like the kitchen images, I set them in overcast days and I actually put rain on the windows, uh, but the light inside of it, it was very bright inside. And then there was like this very soft light coming across that entire thing. The client could not care less that it was rainy outside. They love they loved the way it made the space look. I was like, OK, so I did something right there. Right. And I've done blue skies that were blown out on interiors that the client couldn't stand. Right. Even though the the visual effect is the same, the sky ends up being like a a white or a bright gray. Mm -hmm. What they're really reacting to is that initial feeling of did I like this image or not like this image more often than not. Right. Because if you do it overcast, but you make it look beautiful and inviting and warm and bright and everything else, they're likely to still have a good positive reaction. And if they don't, blue skies may or may not be the answer, but something's wrong. You didn't do your job well enough. I just want to make a reminder to everybody here listening that all the valuable things that you're telling me, they come from a place of a lot of years of experience in the field working for offices, such as, yeah, the box and Thomas Johansson. But, but if you were to think about the skills that you've learned while working for these two offices, now, which ones are the most valuable to you into your practice? It's an interesting thing to think through because everything we've been talking about so far is, has not been about actual image making. It's been mostly about business or starting your own thing or mental health or whatever it might be. And then and a lot of that was, as you just said, like in the question itself, 
is stuff that was one hard won by basically doing the wrong thing or trying new things with clients and having some of them work and some of them not work so well. And I think that a lot of those things, that's kind of the only way to learn them. Mm-hmm. If I could go back to like a younger version of me and tell them things like, I don't know how much good it would do. Right. Cause if you don't sit through those client meetings and make some of those mistakes and and you learn at a deeper level there. When I think back to my time at D-Box and Thomas Johansson's, I definitely, I got at D-Box, I got a ton of exposure to clients that I'm, I'm now working with, or at least like the same kind of circle of clients. And so that was obviously invaluable. There's a million things that I could go back and say that I learned from my time there. But I think that the, the number one thing that I developed or was able to develop while I was there was an eye. There's a there's a trend that I've seen in my own career that I think is true for a lot of soft skills and hard skills. So whether you're talking about developing an eye for lighting or learning a new piece of software or negotiation, whatever it might be, is the initial learning is quite slow when you're trying to figure things out. And the pace at D-Box was slower than I was used to working with architects. I was doing a lot of, you know, freelance work before that while I was in architecture school where like we do, you know, 30 images in a weekend. Right. And they were all pretty quick and pretty crumbly put together. And, you know, at D-Box, because we were making marketing images, things kind of slowed down. We had time to really dive into the craft. And I was incredibly fortunate uh, to work with some of the senior people there and get to see their take and how they dealt with images. And over those two years, I think that my eye for composition and color and light categorically changed in the sense that it didn't just get better. Like I started seeing things that I could literally couldn't see two years beforehand. And I developed a sensitivity to that largely just by being surrounded by incredibly talented artists uh, and mentors while I was there. And I think that that's the most valuable thing that I learned there. It's by no means the only thing that I learned, mm-hmm. but that was definitely like, I don't know where else I would have learned that. Cause you need a certain amount of time to, if you're just, uh, if you're working at a firm that's like cranking out images constantly all of the time, it's harder to take those like nights where you just sit and stare at an image and try to figure out what you're missing. Or if you have a senior member of staff sit down and fix that image for you, doing like the AB of turning what their changes on and mm-hmm. then going back to what you looked at and like, how on earth did they see that? What, what did they see that made them know that that needed to be a little bit darker and that needed a little bit less green and that's all that needed to be fixed. Right. Right. And so I think that those like really soft parts of the craft, right. Cause anyone can take a curve and, and pull down the green a little bit or up the midtones. Right. It's not a technical thing, but it's that sensitivity to it of to be able to look at an image, and be like, this is the thing that needs to be fixed. This is the thing that that image wants. This is where it's lacking. I think that that's a really slow thing to learn. And I think that's the biggest thing that I took away from D-Box. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thomas Johansson's. I took a very different thing away from there. The first I was there for, I think, in total, like 15 months, I want to say 14 months. The first year I was actually counting, the first year I made 250 images, which equates to roughly an image per working day. Yeah. Now, a lot of times that was multiple cameras from the same space or same room or same building or whatever it might be. Um, But I made a lot of images. 
And I was the only person there at the time making images. So it was just crank them out as, as quickly as possible. Now at D-Box, I learned like how to make a good image. If we're, if we're trying to like quantify what I learned um, in, in the simplest terms, I think at D-Box, I learned how to make a good image. And at Thomas Johansson's, I learned a process that works for me personally, that I didn't have to worry about ever passing a file off to anybody else. I didn't have to worry about having things named in a way that other artists could potentially use mm-hmm. the scene. All I was really doing was, was cranking out images. And in that process, I learned a creative process that worked for me and also allowed me to work very fast. So because I already knew the basics of making what would be considered a high quality image within the industry, that year was like, how can I do that quickly? Incredibly quickly, right? Where can I cut corners? Where does detail really matter? All of these other things of, of, of just process and what works for you, right? Because there's the, the challenge, making it a, a good image in a day isn't just about, um, okay, so how can I get everything modeled, get decent furniture in there, get lighting set up? There's all those like technical things that you need to do to create a CG image, a, a rendered image. But then there's also the creative part of that, which is that within that small time frame, I also need to come up with a composition that looks cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. I still need to do the, the, and again, I'm using the air quotes here, like the creative part in that same amount of time without the ability to necessarily come back and look at it the next day with fresh eyes. And so there's the technical things of how can I figure out how to model more quickly, texture more quickly, set up materials more quickly. Uh, But then there's also the creative side of like, I need to come up with a good camera, good lighting, good like time of day, mood, color, ambiance, all of that stuff in an incredibly compact amount of time. Because by and large, I'm going to press render. I'm going to do some Photoshop. I'm going to hand that off and then I'm going to another project. And then the day after that, I'm going to another project. And when you're working at that speed, you don't, I don't think that my work got a lot better while I was at Thomas Johansson's. If I look at the images at the beginning and the end, there's a remarkable change. Mm-hmm. But that's because when I got there, I couldn't work at the speed that I needed to. I could make the quality of images. If you had given me a couple of more days, those images would have looked like the images that I made at, towards the end of my time there. Yeah. Right? It sounds like, David, a cap in quality due to time constraints. Am I getting this right? Yes. Okay. It was actually one of the, the things that I talked to him, uh, Thomas, about, like, when I was telling him that I was going out on my own, which is that I, I kind of hit a point where like, I can't make images any more quickly than I already am. Without more time, I can't increase the quality because that kind of slow learning that I mentioned at D-Box, that's incredibly important. And if you want to do, if you're trying to improve the quality of your work, you need to give that time because doing things quickly over and over and over again won't necessarily raise that bar. But if you can step back for a minute spend more time on one image or one film or whatever it is you're working on, you can raise that bar slowly and then you can figure out how to speed that process up. So that's it for now, folks. This marks the end of part one with the conversation with Mike. But don't worry, part two is dropping in two weeks. Tune in to keep listening to Mike's take on how to navigate the industry as a solo studio. I'll see you then. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed, please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting app and get a new episode every second week. If you like this episode, help us growing and improving the show by rating and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. 
Got a question or is there something you would like me to cover in a future episode? Write me an email at podcast at bigpicturevisual.com. Thank you again for listening and see you next time.